Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. What is he, your boyfriend? Your child. An infant. Your mocking is thus infantile. He is not my boyfriend. This this podcast is more to me than you can dream. He ease the moon when I'm lost in darkness and warmth when I shiver in cold and his kiss still thrills me even after a millennia. His heart overflows with the kindness of which this world is not worth of. I love this podcast behind beyond measure and reason. He is not my boyfriend. He's my podcast and he's more. I should have saved the podcast for the third time. I I know. I was wondering where you were going to put it because I don't know. Right. It's 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 a, it's a very flowery big monologue, you know. There's a lot of places to put it. Yes, but I should have saved podcast for the end. I should have built up to it. We're recording at nine o'clock in the morning, which we don't usually. Mm. Right, right, right. But where would you put it? He's not my boyfriend. He's all and he's more like he's not my boyfriend. He's podcast. Yes. I was yeah. going to say he's not my boyfriend. He's my podcast and he's more. And it, and I did uh, that, but I also replaced the two earlier instances of man. It, right. <sighs> Look, guys, it's I an all timer. It's a hall of famer. It's a perfect episode. And let's say right off the bat, Ben <laughs> is on his porch. That's right. <laughs> Full circle. Ben is sitting on his porch, the porch of his childhood home in That's New true. Jersey, wearing sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> and... A shirt that I wore as a child, like a Halloween glow-in-the-dark shirt. It seems to have skeletons, uh, bones on it. It says shake. It does shake. have bones. It says yes, shake. It has bones. <laughs> it, I mean, talk about full circle. It's an early bone shirt <laughs> on the yeah. childhood porch. Yeah. But when we say, yeah, I guess it is full circle. Yeah, it's full circle. Were you born on that porch, Ben? Is that part of it? Yes. Mm-hmm. That'd be amazing if that was true. No, it's not true, but of this is, not. I'm at my uh, parents' house. They're out of town. So um, I, I came out for the weekend and I just, I, I couldn't not jump at the opportunity to broadcast from the porch where really porch movies started, where I watched movies on a porch. The porch yes. classics. Yes. The porch classics. Now, did you watch this movie on a porch or did you watch it in the comfort of your air conditioning uh, in, Air uh, on a television. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's wow. pretty good. Wow. You, you know, I mean, parents not around. That's why I got relegated to the porch in the first place. They, there's only ah, one TV. Sure. Yeah. They were like, all right, all right, come on, go, yeah, go, go sit on the porch. Your shitty little built in VCR TV and go sit out there and watch something. Would this have been a potential porch movie? It's very violent. So, like, oh, yeah. that would have been, yeah, right. A ragtag group of immortal fighters would definitely been a porch potential movie. Now I want to make it clear. I'm not, I'm not trolling for comedy points here, but there has been zero acknowledgement of my zoom background. Uh, you've got the, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the guy from the, the last dance, the famous bodyguard who plays, uh, quarters you know what right you know throw quarters at the wall or whatever game it is they played jam michael wozniak but what's another way that you would describe him david uh, a human role another 
I don't know. I, I'm not sure what you're trying to leave me up here. Tee, tee up for me here. An old guard. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on that guy's age, but yeah. Griffin, do you hear that beeping like a, of a truck backing up? Oh, Wait a no. second. What's okay. going on here? All right. And you just got a cash load of comedy points. Uh, yes. Dumped it. I will say you also did this in our Slack where you posted like a guy in an old face sort of makeup and then yes. a, a security guard and then like a duck honking. And that was supposed to be like the old guard honks. <laughs> yes. But we were all kind of like, are you what's up? What, what's this? Like, you know, we, we, we did not dial into it. I did it on Twitter and I believe I believe that we won the Academy Award for best. Picture yeah, right. Of course. Uh, which is yes. technically isn't fair because it was four pictures. It was uh, the word, the an old man mask security guard from behind and then honks. But I simplified. I've simplified it to one now. John Michael yes. Wozniak, the old guard. And he's and he does honk John Michael Wozniak. He does. And I'm also realizing he's not even I feel like the old guard. Oh, he's not that old. Like he no. seems sort of what in his 40s, maybe. And there's that character character there's that real human being who's <laughs> part of the the last dance who's the guard who becomes michael jordan's father figure after his own father dies yes, right right yeah that guy's genuinely right he's like he's, in his 50s or if, 60s i mean older, if we're gonna describe yeah. someone as the old guard of i mean that but, group by guard <laughs> security guard standards quite quite aged yeah, i'm i might send back some of the points ben i appreciate them but i feel like i <laughs> well, might have to send back some of them folks we're talking about the old guard today what might be the only new release movie we cover on this podcast all year in 2020 i think i would i would say i would bet on that i mean i know you know it's i suppose it's possible of tenet or wonder woman maybe squeak in by christmas who knows but uh, i would bet against it there are three potentially. The three would be Tenet, Wonder Woman, and West Side Story. West Side Story, sure, right? Supposedly coming out this Christmas. They have, as of the time we're recording, just this week, they reclaimed that the films will come out this year. But everything's getting pushed. Tenet is still technically uh, undated. I yeah. feel like. I just just I mean, so that we can do this thing where we talk about something that will be slightly different in the future when it comes out. I feel like all these movies are about to get released everywhere else in the world before us, right? Which used to feel unfathomable. It does seem possible. I mean, who knows? But it does seem possible. A tenant, I think, is officially right. It doesn't have a release date, but its release date is just like whenever America has unfucked itself like then right. perhaps Tenet can come out. That is now it's like, right. you know, at the bottom of the poster, like in cinemas when yeah. you guys have, you know, actually confronted your public health crisis. And it also feels like they're waiting to announce the official overseas date. Right. Like they're just going to be like uh, officially uh, everywhere that can open the movie. It will open on this day. Yeah, they, and sh- America, they should open it, it in New Zealand or whatever. Right. They like, should you open know, it on Great Fortnite. job, guys. Open it up. <sighs> yeah, they probably should open it on Fortnite. Unfortunately, Palpatine, he only <laughs> programs like 40s and 50s noir movies. Yeah. He's very, yeah. very particular. 
He does. He's not into Nolan. Wow. No, he, that's a guy who really like has been sort of hurting from the loss of Filmstruck. <laughs> Cause right. obviously they yeah. still have noir, but there was something about criterion being matched with like the Warner catalog that really played into his sweet spot of like, as you said, uh, early 20th century gangster films. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so yes, of course, this is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. And Emperor Palpatine thrusts his consciousness into Filmstruck so hard that it died. <laughs> what was Filmstruck if not a dyad, David? I it was suppose, Warner you Brothers mean Criterion and Criterion. TCM. Yeah, right. It was a dyad. You're right. It was a dyad. It was the original <laughs> film dyad. Um, only followed by Manon the Spring. Uh, this is a podcast about filmographies, directors and John DeFloret. I'm finishing my own joke. Uh, directors who have early uh, success, massive success early on in their career, given a series of blank checks, make whatever crazy passion projects they want. Sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby. Now, sure. This, this miniseries, Pot and Basket Cast, covering the films of Gina Prince Bythewood, has been a little different because the thing that activated this miniseries that made us push the red button and put it on the schedule was that it felt like, oh, she's finally getting her big blank check. Right. We had not seen it at the time we committed to doing this miniseries. But uh, she had, the, yeah, she had made a, an expensive action movie yes. for, for Netflix and um, Skydance. And we were hoping we were going to like it. And now about a month after it's gone on Netflix, we finally get to talk about it. And David, yep. oh boy, this thing honks. You you think that it honks? I love it's it. It's a honker I love for it you. So thoroughly, so thoroughly. And there's yep. always that fear when we're covering a director with a miniseries that's vaguely tying up with a new film uh, that you end up with like a Detroit versus a Dunkirk. Mm. You know, mm. you're right. We did have like a those Detroit are both to cases, Right, where we like covered the new release film about three weeks after the miniseries ended. But after we had already committed, we'd been covering all the other movies. And Detroit was just such a bummer to be like, fuck, versus Dunkirk, where it's like, this is a good one to end on. And what man, about Dumbo? Dumbo, I think, falls right in the middle, right? Yeah. In between the two. That was a two. weird one. Yeah. It's like, in my mind, I'm like... As long as it's a Dumbo or better, we can end a miniseries on a new release. Detroit really doesn't exist. I kind of forgot about Detroit. Really doesn't exist. That's a weird one. A very, very bizarre film to have been made. Um, yeah. But uh, you heard from our friend, past and future guest, Bill Gabiri. Yeah, I checked with him because you were like, check to see if that movie like sucks. Because if it sucks, we then maybe, yeah, right. maybe that we want to thing. avoid. Right. I was like, can we literally just get one person we trust who has seen this film early before we officially commit to doing this series? And Bilga was like, it rules. And we were like, great, let's commit to doing it. Let's start recording. Let's hope we agree with Bilga. Uh, yes. By the time we'd started recording, I had seen it as well. I mean, people say, yes, the buzz was good. And... Then we started making this miniseries and now it's come out. It's on Netflix. It's a hit. Uh, and yeah, it's the most watched movie that anyone's ever seen in all right. of history. 70 million people watched it every minute of the day. But um, and she's lined up new projects, her career, you know, whatever yeah. continues to make great strides and, you know, onwards and upwards. Like it feels like she is in the blank check mode right now. 
yes, I would say it did. There was like that little bit of like sort of, you know, post hype backlash where people are like, well, it's okay. Like, you know, I feel like there was a little bit of that discourse, which has happened so to every to movie. Yes. It's happened with every movie in quarantine, I think, because there's also the, um, well, maybe we just kind of like were hyped up about a movie because like there aren't that many movies. You know, there's always that you know, uh, conversation yeah. as well. When a sentence starts movie. with well, it's always going to be good. <laughs> oh, we love to, We love it. We love a, a well sentence. Yeah. Mm. It's also it's like the exact thing that makes me sort of dislike the culture of movies going straight to home viewing, which is just how quickly the discourse is even more sped up. It's even mm. more breathless and breakneck than the sort of uh, unsustainable speed at which I think these feedback cycles have already been happening um, just naturally because of the internet, you know? Yeah. Um, but like the same thing, I mean, I remember uh, w- watching the five bloods. I texted you and I was like, this movie's fucking humongous. Right. This has to be like Spike's second or third best movie. I think this is going to win best picture which is still vaguely my prediction in this weird Oscar year that we can't predict. I honestly would maybe possibly predict it right now. Just, but that's just because God knows what's coming, right? Like there's, it's such a weird right. time. And, and my theory too is I think that's a way that's going to benefit from having, from being on Netflix already and six or seven months of people digesting it and coming back to it and what have you. Like, I think that's a movie that will benefit from people watching it a second time at home four months from now or whatever. But I was watching with you and I was like, we all agree this thing's a triumph. And then the next day I started reading all the like, well, actually takes from the five bloods. And I was like, I don't know. Like it's fucking every movie. Is it? Are we just like, especially now because it's like any, any drop coming down the rain pipe, you know? Yeah. Anything that feels like a new movie. The standards are so high. And, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my my mom and dad watched uh, Palm Springs and they were like, that's the worst movie I've ever seen. And I'm like, it's absolutely that's a, not the worst movie you've ever that seen. That is an insanely hot take. That's a crazy I take. Agree. That's the worst movie they've ever seen. They've got they've had a great life if that's the worst they were movie like, they ever they, saw. They like nothing about it. It was poorly shot. It's not funny. It's predictable. Wow. Rude. And then I said to my dad, did you really predict plot points, you know, X, right. Y, and Z, like late right. plot points in that movie? Because that movie has so many twists. And he went, well, no, I mean, I didn't predict it. But at that point, I'd just given up. And I was like, so it's not predictable. I would love to know what it actually was, like whatever the thing that flipped your dad's switch actually was, because there's clearly something. It's not just like, oh, I thought it was predictable. There was some moment in that movie where he was just like, I hate this. I'm giving up. Yeah. Yeah. I have a Thumbs feeling it was it. Andy Samberg masturbating in the first four exactly. minutes. Exactly. That's what I was sort of, <laughs> that's what I was hinting at. And my dad loves body stuff, but I feel like that scene is pointedly trying to be uncomfortable. Yeah, right. It's like, you're like, oh, I get it. It's funny. It's Andy Samberg, you know, oh, is, you know, maybe his dick will be in a box later. And then you're just like, oh, this is just a bummer. <laughs> this yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah, yeah. And they never box his dick. They never, th- his dick becomes uh, never unboxed or boxed. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. Um, yeah. But, but Old Guard, yes. I also texted you the following day and I was like, this thing's great. Uh, I, I think this is S tier Netflix movie, uh, not to talk greasy, but you and I often talk about whether it's because of, 
I think this is a thing that I just touch upon very briefly. Netflix very often forces its filmmakers to follow very, very specific technical specs. Yes. So, so that, that their, their movies, movies will right. play best on TV in a way that I often think flattens them out a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not just in terms of, I think, the kind of shot sequencing and uh, shot selection that is maybe sometimes uh, strongly encouraged by Netflix, but literally the specs about like what you have to shoot on at what speeds and how they output it and what the digital intermediate's like and all this shit to just make everything look as like, you know, it's not as bad as uh, uh, motion smoothing on TVs. No. Or even just like uh, Blu-rays. When they started, a lot of movies were getting uh, digital noise reduction to death. They look super waxy because the studio's perception was if people are buying HD, they don't want anything that has grain on it. They want it to look really, really shiny and sharp, which is not how... For example, Predator looks. It's just not. No, right. No, I mean that, right. That they wanted, they, they figured, everyone figured we wanted everything to look like the TV you see at Best Buy that's showing right. the screensaver of the right. fucking jungle, you know, or whatever, you know, like of waterfalls. And that obviously doesn't fit right. with movies. Netflix originals are not that bad, but there are subtle things that they're pushing across all their films for a consistency's sake that I think have a similar effect um on a much smaller scale and this movie doesn't feel like a netflix movie to me it is in that rare camp of netflix movies that feel like uh real movies uh which makes it also the netflix movie i most wish i'd been able to see in theaters uh because every other movie i was thinking that i rank at that level I did go out of my way to see in theaters if only for like the one week it was playing at an iPad well, I mean, or something. Defy Bloods is another one this year. I mean, like that the, obviously the, the theater two. would yes. be just outrageous yes. because of all the, the, the mind sequences and stuff like, you know, like that's right. I, imagining that with an audience, it would be very different. No, I wish I wish I uh, had seen uh, both of those movies in theaters. Yeah, I wish yeah, I'd yeah. seen Never Rarely, Sometimes Always in theaters. Like I, I'm so bummed out every time I watch what I consider to be a major film in quarantine. Because, man, I just really don't like watching serious movies at home for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. I don't like a lot of things about quarantine. Honestly. No. No, we've argued about this. I think most things about it are really good. (laughs) I'm not talking about the disease. I'm saying most sociological aspects of quarantine, I think we can all agree, are better and are making us all feel very normal and well adjusted. Psychologically, it's good too. Sometimes I just feel, I don't know, I feel a little funny about the whole staying at home all the time. I don't thing. know. Uh, I got tra- some issues. David, you're trying to cancel quarantine and I won't stand for it. Well, I, I'm just, I'm just weird. I'm just like a weird guy. Like that's just the thing you got to remember about me is I'm just kind of like a weird guy. You're different. You're a weird guy. Yeah, I'm just kind of like a weird guy. I, I say weird stuff sometimes. But pointedly, I will say the five bloods and old guard are like the two times in quarantine. I've watched a new movie and come close to the feeling I have when I see a great movie in theaters where for like a moment, the world feels reset to me because I am just so excited by how well a film worked on every level for me. You know, um, I, 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 both of these movies I love, but the one we're talking about today, the old guard 
also for me is a movie. I threw out this take to you uh, because this and Palm Springs both came out on the same day that both of these movies are uh, about justifying why you want to stay alive. Sure. Yes. Which is a message that hits really, really hard for me these days with everything we're living through and with the amount Mm -hmm. of death that's surrounding us, you know? And there are different angles on it, but I find this film very uplifting at the end point it reaches, even though it is not a conventionally sort of uplifting movie. But I agree with that. And I think that um, some of the reaction I sort of gauged to this movie was sort of like, a little bit of exhaustion of like, well, at the end of the day, it was kind of an origin story movie and I'm a little sick of those, right? You know, it's a superhero movie in a way. And when the movie's over, it's like, okay, and now the team is going to do its thing, you know, and that's great. And I'm like, no, that's not, it's what you're talking about. It's about them, you know, especially about Charlie's like, you know, remembering what it is. She's like goes to work to do, you know, like she, you know, it's like sort of falling back in love with her life. Does this movie set up some very exciting possibilities for the sequel? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, sure. it's I comic want that shit in that way tomorrow. Right. Yeah. But this film has a complete emotional story that it tells. There are there are complete arcs that are satisfied within the body of this film. Just because it promises more at the end does not mean that the film is just an extended pilot. And I find it very bizarre that it's getting that complaint when everyone's gotten used to the fucking Marvel system, that is that. Like, the Marvel system is just constantly leaving you, walking out of the theater, more excited about what could happen next over what just happened. And I feel like this does the thing that most Marvel movies do not, which is, like, there's real substantive character growth that is meaningful. There are real, like, status quo shifts that are not undoable by the end of this movie that make me feel like I have had a complete meal, even if it makes me want to go back to that restaurant again and order something else, you know? And I have this theory that I threw out to you that I now sort of stand by, especially after doing a little more experimentation, that I think a lot of the complaints of this movie, and look, it is very much possible for someone to just not like this movie. It can just not be. Oh your yeah, tempo. whatever. It's a very specific thing. And as Ben was saying right before we recorded, and we're going to get into it, this movie's got a very weird tone, and it is very much going for a certain elevated action movie. Dare I use that term? But in a way that I think could bump for certain people. If you're looking for just a trashy B movie, shoot 'em up. The the uh, weight. And the sort of hauntedness of this movie might bump a little bit for you. On the same level, if you're looking for just the emotionally, like, sort of uh, astute uh, uh, depth of a Gina Prince Blythewood movie, and you're also having to watch a bunch of shoot 'em ups, that might bump for you. But I see certain comments from people who like this type of movie who are saying, yeah, it's just like another Netflix action movie. Like, they're not even shitting on it, but they're saying, this movie is the same as Extraction. And my report to that is, I don't want to generalize for everybody. I think that's a silly opinion. I think that's a silly opinion. And I also think- If anyone had it. Go ahead. Throw out your- You know what I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think that is connected, perhaps, to people watching this movie the way they watch a Netflix movie. In the sense that they might be watching this movie with the lights on, 
on their phone while doing other things. Forget the old guard. That's just the problem with yeah. everything. You know, that's and then it's not, forget Netflix. It's just that is just the unavoidable truth of how we watch movies at home all the time. It's know, why I don't like watching movies at home. It's why right, I it's, like to go out to the theaters. It's why I will pay to see fucking Netflix movies projected on a screen for the five days they're playing because I right. know I'm going to engage with it more seriously. And obviously, like I, you know, it's 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 easy enough to make the effort to like, oh, turn all the lights off, you know, put your phone, turn it off or put it over there, you know, you know, all that shit. But like sometimes it's impossible for me to avoid being like, oh, you know what? I have something I wanted to, you know, like, you know, whatever. Being at home, you're not trapped with the movie in the same way. No, I think that's what the whole argument for the theater experience is. And that's why we have to save it. Absolutely. From this damned virus. But the first time I was watching this, I would get tempted by my phone and would check something. And then I would realize I'd missed a moment. So I like many times went back to make sure I wasn't missing micro moments. Or if I had to do something else, I would pause it. Like I took the three hours to make sure that I was not actually looking at the screen or fully listening anytime. Something but even happened. that's not as good. Like, it's not of great course. if you have to pause it. I right. Agree. Yeah, that's a pain in the I ass. I agree. I agree. But I was realizing I was doing the classic Netflix thing of just like, oh, I can look away for 15 seconds and look back. And in a movie like this, this movie is all about tiny moments. The difference between what Gina is doing here and what most filmmakers would do with this material is all in tiny moments. And a lot of them are physicality. Yeah, characters. Between stuff. people. Yeah. Right. They're the lingering pause after a line is said. And uh, I last night I watched this movie for a second time, but I like watched it in bed with the lights on and also doing some stuff on my phone at times. Not pointedly trying to not pay attention, but trying to see how the movie plays if it's mostly playing like background audio, like murder mystery or something. And the other thing I did was I reread or read rather the comic book. And the comic book to yeah. me is what this movie's detractors accuse it of being. The comic book is very much, let's set up an idea. The comic book is very much, here's a demo for a possible movie franchise. You know, it's right. that thing that a lot of like creator comics, you know, people who have worked with the big boys, Marvel and DC, the Mark Millars of the world. Now every comic they start feels like it's a pitch for a movie. It's a backdoor pitch for a movie. And it's just about the table setting and all that sort of stuff. And the entire narrative of what you're saying, David, of uh, Andy learning to love her job again, learning to want to be alive again, having her faith in humanity restored, none of that is in the comic book. Mm. The comic book Mm. does not have any of those emotional arcs. It does not have that depth. It has flattened out a bunch of stuff. The core elements are all there. Many of the big moments are all there. The characters are by and large all there, but it's, it's such a good example. I uh, really will encourage people to read the book if they can, uh, whether they love this movie or slightly underwhelmed by this movie as a study in what a director brings to a project because Greg Rucka adapted his own work for this movie. I'm sure Gina yes. did some work on it. And even if she literally wasn't the one at the typewriter, I think, I think she did a fair bit of work on it, but he, 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 I think so he wrote too. the screenplay. Yeah. I think so too. And what I was going to say is even if she wasn't physically the one typing, it feels very clear to me that she was saying, if I'm making this movie, I want this to be in it. And I want this embellished in the story and this and that, because they're all the pet themes and interests. 
She said her big thing was also that the Nile character, I haven't read the comics, so I can't, but like the, the Nile character doesn't pop as much in the, like the, the, that was Absolutely where she not. put a lot of attention. Yeah. Uh, look, Nile and Andy have very little interior life in the comics. Right. Uh, uh, Booker and Joe and the, what's the third guy's name? I'm forgetting now. Um, oh, the, the, uh, the, the rest of the, yeah. They're very similar between the comics and the movie, but they are also the guys who have the larger sort of like plotty movements. So their characterization is tied to that, you know? Right. Um, right. Andy and Niall both kind of feel like ciphers. Andy in particular just feels like impossibly cool badass woman, which she succeeds as being in a comic book form. And Niall is just the new one, you know? Yeah, um, right. She's the the class. It's a classic. I mean, the thing is also in a comic book, it's like you have 22, you know, illustrated pay. You don't have a lot of time yeah. to do stuff like, you know, and like they, they, that comic books sometimes need like 30 issues to set up everything in terms of character right. and plot that they want to set up. And, but I have not, yeah, I have not read this. The, thing. Gra- the graphic novel, which is just collecting that first mini series is five or six issues in total. It's like right. a little over a hundred pages. And right. not only is that end up translated as being a much shorter cliff notes version of this story being told, but also uh, there's certain limitations to what you can do in comic books in terms of how much story you can tell through performance what she's really choosing to do here, which is a thing she always does, you know? Uh, I think for a a filmmaker who is primarily a writer, started out as a writer, comes from that perspective, uh, I think one of the things that makes uh, Prince Pythewood so good is she understands a good actor can do the storytelling that five lines of dialogue could do on the page. You know, you can convey something with a look, with a moment, with a pause. Um, and this is a movie that's very big on that. If you're half watching it, you're only hearing the dialogue that might feel a little more exposition-y, and you're not noticing the amount of stuff conveyed by the moment Charlize takes after she says something that implies the deep well of sadness this woman has felt for 2,000 years. Uh, uh, 6,000 years, I believe, is the concept. Yes. Well, I'm saying maybe she was happy for the first 4,000. All right, fine. She was happy for the first 4,000. You're right. But but the comic book does not have that weight. And there's even just stuff that I think Gina said explicitly was her addition. The the Chiwetel character is nothing but a functionary in the book. He's got no backstory, and the end point they get at with this character is not there. He is just the Smithers to the bad guy. Okay, so he it doesn't end with him being maybe set up as the Smithers to the good guys. Professor which, X, right. Right, exactly, yeah. No, that's um, not there. The guy's got no motivation. He's got no larger function. He isn't, the, the element of him tracking the sort of long tail effect that they have had on humanity is not there. He is literally just Smithers. And the bad guy in the film is a much more traditional He's like jacked up. He's like right, slick back right, hair, right. cool suit. He's still a tech pharma bro, but he's closer to being like the Elon Musk version of it. Let's let's dig into the meat of this film. As a little backstory, as a little table setting, uh, post Beyond the Lights, uh, a film that you and I agree is one of the most underrated films of the 2010s. Uh, but did not perform particularly well at the box office and did not get the recognition it deserved. Um, She sort of surprisingly gets announced as the director of Silver and Black, 
a big True. superhero movie that Sony is making as part of their expanded, we're going to make spinoffs of everything in the Spider-Man universe. Um, yes. The only other thing uh, to note is that she also worked on the, um, the show Cloak and Dagger. So we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. So it was, uh, I, I believe right after Beyond the Lights, she announced that her and Guguma Batha Raw were going to team up again to adapt a Roxanne Gay book. Oh, sure. Sure. Okay. That never came into uh, fruition. That never came to, sure. Right, yeah. She does Shots Fired, which is her miniseries on Fox that she did with her husband. Um, but she directed three of those episodes, wrote the show. Um, her and Sanaa Lathan again. Um, yeah. And then they announced that she's going to do Silver and Black, which is Silver Sable and Black Hat, two characters that no one would think to necessarily center an entire movie around at this point. They don't, uh, neither of, they're not related to each other, except that they're both in the Spider-Man world. Right. They've occasionally and crossed paths, but they're not a team. No, I mean, Black Cat is like a villainess, an anti-hero, right? Like she's like a cool yes. uh, cat burglary kind of, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I never loved Black Cat. She's all right. She's sort of a Catwoman ripoff. Exactly. And and Silver Sable is... Uh, Silver Sable's cool. She's fucking very great. Cool. I'm a yeah. huge Silver Sable fan. She was very big in the 90s when I was yes. reading comics when I was a little kid. Uh, but I loved like her in the wild pack. Like I loved all that shit. She, but yeah, she's yeah. like, she's kind of like a Euro, uh, mercenary type, right? Like, cause she's from like, yeah. uh, I think she's from, uh, not Latveria, but like next door to Latveria. <laughs> like she's sure. from another fictional Euro. Okay. Yeah. That would have been She's fun. from like Latveria's Belgium or whatever. Exactly. Right. Um, but, but Sony kept on sort of like saying, we want to make a female driven Spider-Man movie. Like t to their credit, sure. they were like, we want to do this. And like seven years ago, they were already on that tip, except they could never find a good thing to base a story around. So there was that rumor they were going to do the young Aunt May is a spy movie. And then there was a movie that was called The Glass Ceiling that was like every female Spider-Man character teaming up. It was like Silk and Penny Parker and all these sorts of characters. And then there was... uh there's now still the rumor they're going to make a Madam Web movie. But for that moment in time, Sony was all about the idea of doing Silver and Black. And Gina meets on it and is like, you know, I, I didn't think I wanted to do a big action movie, but I read this script and I immediately saw the movie in my head. And I got so excited about making it. And Sony was fast tracking it. And it felt like, holy shit, she's going to get to do this big superhero movie. This is awesome. And she was talking about it really excitedly and her really strong take. And then the movie just sort of started slowing down. And what it felt like between the lines, which was later confirmed by her, is just as they got closer and closer to going, and it felt like they were maybe six months away from filming, about to announce casting, deep in sort of the, the pre-production, they started questioning all of her decisions. I, I also think she, she didn't like the script and whatever it is they were demanding script-wise, right? That was where they were like, well, well right? You know, there's I a lot of, yeah. I think it was the opposite of this. I think she said, read the script and said, oh, I know exactly I'm what I want to make all this. I'm going to do all this, right. Right, and then started adding all that stuff on. And then when she added the stuff, Sony was like, we don't like all this new stuff. Whereas Old right. Guard, it feels like they're the central couple of things that she latched onto here that she retains, but then added a lot of depth. And Netflix and Skydance, to their credit, were just like, do you. Um, but she very much got this movie because of her work on Silver and Black. 
even though that film never got made. Well, let me, uh, I talked to her about it. Let me, let me, I've, got, I've got context here. It I, led to her doing the Cloak and Dagger pilot because she was sort of in the Marvel ecosystem. And she no, wanted she, to test she did people. that because she was like, I absolutely have to do something because no one is taking me seriously. Like that wasn't, <laughs> she didn't get it. She was like, basically like hunt down at all costs, anything that will prove that I can direct action to these people because like yeah. I'm being pushed around the silver and black thing fell apart. She does cloak and dagger. That's the first time she'd ever shot action at all. Like, mm-hmm. you know, cause her first three movies don't have any like, so that's like her doing, but like Skydance came to her with this movie. I yes. think Skydance was very seriously. Yes. Like we need a female director for this. So they approached her. There were, Charlie's was not even attached. It was it was just no. Skydance being like, we've got this comic, you know. It's it's you know this. We're gonna have this basic story. Like we want we want a, a female director. What do you think? And yeah, I mean this thing that yeah. happens now. Uh, I was briefly trying to uh, find like a comic book to develop as a TV series. Uh, right. to and everything's owned by someone. Acta. Right. Everything's owned by someone. It was insane. I mean, you were like, I was talking to you during this process, but I was reading like six graphic novels a week and everything is owned by someone. If anything hits a store shelf that has even a halfway engaging premise, someone options it immediately. So this just feels like a book. I mean, A, the book's designed to be pitched as a movie or a TV yeah. show. And 100%. B, Skydance, it feels like, is trying to make the move to almost being a little bit of an Annapurna, where they're, they go from being a financing company to a little more of a sort of self-sustaining studio, even if it's just making stuff for Netflix. It feels like they were the main creative force on this movie and not Netflix. Yes, because uh, they all Skydance also did Six Underground. They were the main creative force, um, but yeah. yeah, Six Underground, which insanely I've never seen. I, I know, just didn't here. watch it's it. Very weird that I just have Michael Bay it. made a movie, I and I was just like, I oh, I guess I'll check that out later. I don't know. Like, I mean, it's not like it got good reviews, but still, no. like I and and that one in particular is one where I was like, it's gonna feel like a bummer to watch a Michael Bay movie for the first time at home, even if it's a bad one. And yeah. I missed the one week it was at the IPIC South Street Seaport. I refuse to go to the IPIC South Street Seaport. I only I go there to see Netflix movies because like, they, they play. What? Such what? a bad cinema experience. It you is know, the, the, worst. The, the waiter comes and talks to you. Like, the waiter, the David, there's a section where there's no wait, waiter service. You have to go and bust your own food and drinks. It's tiered. You have to it's go very, and get it. The, they give classist. you a beeper, and then you have to leave the theater, walk to they the lobby, so pick weird. up your tray. What is this? They charge you more for the seats with food service, and those seats also are like little pods. It, it's the weirdest fucking theater. There's also the weird one that I love uh, that's pretty much a nightmare, the CMX, which is uh, some Mexican chain. That's right, I've never doing been a to dining experience. Yes, yes yeah, um, I know. I know of its existence. At IPix, someone, yeah. a waiter sang the birthday song to someone during a movie. I just wanted to Fuck put that. that out there, and then we can move on. <laughs> Do you know what oh, I would boy. give for that level of frustration now, though? Oh, like, I God. just wish I was in a theater tisking at a person checking their cell phone in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was sitting next to someone who brought like fucking egg salad. Right. Into I was a just going to say, just the, just the smell of a stranger's ass, just ripping ass right now. Someone taking their shoes Wait, off and putting is the their fart feet detective up. here. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. I threw on my Sherlock Holmes hat and I'm ready to sniff. 
Um, this so, very yeah, much anyway, feels right. like a Skydance movie that was made for Netflix. They're the ones who seek her out. Uh, saw the uh, Cloak and Dagger pilot. Knew that she was in development on that. You have to imagine just Hollywood circles. They were reading her drafts or hearing about what she was trying to do. Um, they came to her with the book. And she said there were the couple things she latched onto. But as I've talked about, as I front loaded, I was surprised for how much it is very much a one to one adaptation with the same creator and writer adapting his own work, that all the depth in this movie is not present in the comic. That the comic is very much the surface version of it. And the comic is the version that this movie's detractors claim it is. Sure. I mean, she's she's very complimentary about Rucka and she said like, oh, I had the comic book with me at all times and he was very open to all the changes I wanted to make. You it's know, a good it book. all sounded like a perfectly um, harmonious collaboration. Like, you know, it, but it is a fun comic book with good ideas. I have nothing right. bad to say about it, but I think this movie is playing on a different level. Yeah. And um, it's a great adaptation and that it's finding the the themes, the personal themes that one storyteller can dig into in someone else's from their starting point, you know? Yes. Uh, and there's this cool axe with like a little circle that looks like a big circle. And that's the in the comic. is definitely in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so they, they stuck with that at least. So right off the bat, this movie starts with in media res, like not literally, I bet you wonder how I got here, but close to it which I usually dislike. I feel like we've yeah. talked about, usually it just feels like it's a flourish for flourish sakes. But the the opening is so striking to this movie, and I love that it takes less than 10 minutes to get back to this point. Me too. I But yes, the first time I watched it, I was kind of like, meh. Like, I, I am very resistant to those openings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second time I rewatched, the, the time I when, when I rewatched it for the podcast, I was like... Uh, I don't know, like whatever. It clicked for me more that I I had forgotten that she's thinking like, you know what? Maybe I'll be dead this time, and that's that'll be okay. Like you know, like right, like that's what she because that's what she's saying in her monologue is sort of like, look, you know, every time I'm kind of like, is this it? Is this going to be it? Because maybe you know, maybe it's time for it to be it. And this is a big thing I love about this movie, aside from all that thematic stuff, just on a very surface level. when you hear the pitch for this movie, you go like, haven't I seen eight variations on this? Isn't this just mm. like six things I've already engaged with smashed together? Isn't this just like a Wolverine mixed with right. like, yeah. You got some Wolverine. Right. I mean, she, yeah, is it, yeah. Isn't this special ops Wolverine? And to some right. degree, I'm not accusing him of, of theft, but uh, th- there's the one sort of good sequence in the otherwise excretable X-Men Origins Wolverine is that opening credit sequence where you see Wolverine and his brother Sabretooth uh, time-lapsed fighting in every important war of the last 300 years. Right. That was just like such an interesting like, oh, yeah, right. I guess Wolverine has like been used as a soldier in all these different battles and seeing him exist in different time periods was kind of a striking thing. And the rest of that movie is bullshit. And it feels like that might have been a thing that inspired Rucka, the old guard, the idea of, oh, these soldiers have been there for all of these different things. They fought like all of humanity's great battles. Is it just stripped down black ops Wolverine team? But I think a big thing she's doing here is uh, this isn't like cool healing. This is almost zombie like in how much these guys are undying. 
Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, because it's not that different from your Wolverines where like you got the cool special effects and everything sort of snapping and it's gross, but you're right that there's a weird like glassiness to their eyes. Like like it's a little more clear that they are kind of like dead for a second, if that makes sense, like versus Wolverine, obviously, Wolverine is is always just like, ah, God, bad day. Like, whereas they're like, I just died and now I have come back to life. It like all the way back to the first X-Men movie. He has it's that thing of like where he's like, you know, like where like it's like like it's like he got, you know, whatever David, punched. You in just the, chin the impression that I was about to describe. But even right, Logan, right. which is like the grittiest of them, by and yes. large, he cracks his neck and then yeah, the little the gash like heals. You know, she she cited Logan as uh, as an influence, though. She does. Uh, you like, know, she, she's like aware. Cracked bones, really gnarly wounds, and they take time and it really feels like you're watching footage of someone being murdered played in reverse. <laughs> like, right, right, which, right. Which I love that I, this is another thing that I think she's doing very differently than almost everyone else working in the genre. This is really a movie about the weight of violence as well. Like, it, yes. it is a movie that does not take its violence or its death lightly. And that is also both visually and thematically when it's expressed in the text of the film, something that is not in the book. When they talk about the cost of taking a life, how you have to carry that with you, it's not. And the book is not gory in the same kind of way. It's gory more in an oh cool kind of way. Uh, yeah, she. Uh, when I interviewed her, she cited the the very famous book on killing, which was written by yes. a soldier. That's about like the sort of you know intense intense psychological toll of killing people that like you know builds up on people in war. Uh, and if, right, that was her whole life. Like, what if you were doing that for thousands of years? It would make you know, like it would mess with your yeah. brain chemistry. She made the five main actors, the the members of the titular old guard, read that book and ma- use that as their primary text for character. She right. was like, this has to be an important element of this movie. And it, it, it absolutely uh, is. And that's something we almost never see. I feel like in a very different form and not as uh, directly or emotionally, the John Wick films are kind of about that. You know, like how much his humanity gets lost the more he kills people. But right. but this is explicitly like said like and and it ha- it takes the time once again. This is like a Gina moment thing that if you're not fully paying attention to this movie, glosses over. But uh, in your mind, but it, it takes the time to have the reaction shots of its primary characters looking at a body they've just killed and having a moment of like weight. It, it is not joyful. Yeah. It is not badass. These are all human beings, even if they're bad. When we meet Niall, she's just killed someone. And for the first time. Implied for the first time. Right, exactly. Right. And her reaction is like to try and save that person, which obviously yes. the, the old guard no longer yes. have that uh, impulse. But to that point, I also think the important shot, the opening shot is important. Those opening couple of shots with the voiceover, because as you said, David, they are like glassy eyed. It's very weird to, if you know anything about this movie, you know, it's immortal people, right? Sure. And to start the film with all of them lying dead on the floor, it doesn't make you think, oh, this is the end of the movie. This is how they die. But it makes you think, I'm going to watch them come back from this. Like they're going to show me the healing process to this. It makes it, eerie it makes it haunted from the very beginning uh, but i mean the other thing that we don't know that i certainly didn't know going into this movie is like 
that twist of also like, yes, they're immortal. Yes, they can heal from basically any wound, but there is, they all that, you know, their number will come up one day and they do know that. And so there's that sort of like hint of mortality, like to every encounter um, that they're all kind of wondering about. And especially because they don't know, like they don't know what the operating rule is. What, what age do you stop being able to heal? Is there a thing that uh, pushes you out of immortality. Um, I love that there's no system or there's like no like tome to it. Yes. You know, it's just like this has happened. And I guess really the only thing is that they all are connected through dreams. Yes. I am. I am praying, praying that the comics don't eventually uh, explain the codex of how their immortality works. I mean, if the comics less interested. Right. I don't know if the comics are going to keep going. It looks like he did two volumes. Is it ongoing? Like, is it an ongoing series? Do you know? It's like he's always said he envisioned it as a trilogy. It's uh-huh. the second miniseries is just finishing up now. The trade is coming out right around. Yeah, right. The it's called time. Force Multiplied. Yes. Yeah. I guess the trade's coming out in September. So September, I haven't read it right. yet. Um, but. I, I think, by and large, the three volumes of this story are probably going to be what they try to adapt for the three movies. And it yes. certainly seems like there's no reason for them not to make a sequel now if it has, in fact, been watched by, let me see this, two trillion people per <laughs> nanosecond. Yeah, right. Everyone everyone has watched it. So much so that other Netflix characters, such as Hot Santa Claus, played by Kurt Russell, have watched the movie. Yes. They, they noted yes. that. And he's going to be a member of the old guard in uh, the older guard, the sequel to the old guard. I'm sure they will make a sequel. There was a recent deadline article that was talking about how like it won't be quick because Charlie's does not like to do action back to back because it's exhausting and it's a whole thing. And of course, Gina Prince Blythe would just set up a new movie that she's doing with Viola Davis. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I I also feel like uh, Charlize has been very openly talking about how she is not filming a movie until there's a vaccine. Sure. Right. Well, that's fine, too, obviously. But um, yeah, but but just like on a personal level, she's like, I don't feel comfortable getting on a set. I'm writing this off until I don't think they would even start making an old guard sequel for a couple years is sort of also just I think. But but hopefully they can do one because I think they should. And this thing is screaming for one. And, I, I just would like to know. see it, but I think this movie, once again, works as a complete meal. So it goes from them lying dead on the floor, uh, uh, her voiceover of like, I've been here before, you know, the, the whatever. But then it goes to uh, her walking down the streets of, where are they? Are they in Jordan at the beginning of the movie? Uh, they're in Marrakesh, I believe. Marrakesh. Um, but there's, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, because there's that whole sequence where they're like... Um, isn't it? It's right at the start where they're eating the baklava and they're like guessing where it's sort of like she has a whole little reunion with her with her pal. All, all of this stuff. It's very like classic, relaxed, behavioral Gina stuff. You know, it, it's yes. like uh, Bill Gus review of this movie was great. He talked about the baklava being like the defining moment of this film, that that would either not be included in a movie or would be included just as a cute moment. And the movie right. really just like slows down and lets this moment breathe. Because it's like, if if you are in these characters' shoes, 
how hard it is to attain a moment of pure enjoyment like that. The weirdness right. of what still has any sort of appeal to them and also setting up all these little characterization things about their reality where it's like, oh, right, I guess if you're that old, you kind of have infinite money. Like she talks right, about right, how she's right. bought Booker, the Matea Schoenart's character, a first edition book, right? It's like Count of Monte Crisco. Like it, she's bought him like a very important text yeah. In a first edition. She, she bought like a Rodan statue. Right. Right. She right. just has all this stuff either because uh, she owned it before it was worth anything or because she's literally the exception to the you can't take it with you rule where well, yeah. she's just doing high level work for incredible amounts of money and she never runs out. She like opened a high yield savings account hundreds right. of years thousand ago. Years thousands ago. Right. of years ago. I mean, interest, right. it just compounds over time. Like you're going right. to win. So, Right, so it's like the one thing that's still kind of fun for them because they show like all of them are drinking all the time, but it feels like it barely even has any effect on them. Is yes. this thing they buy her a piece of baklava and she has to guess every single ingredient in it and the origin of that ingredient? Because yeah. once again, it's like, oh, if you're that old, I guess you just have the time to understand everything. And also, as you get old, food is the only thing you right. really got. Right, so you can taste the difference between like which sea your salt comes from and stuff. Um, <laughs> showing them checking into the hotel, her like erasing the photo uh, when she gets caught in the background of these young girls' so, uh, selfie. I mean, I just think all this is like really good characterization stuff, none of which is in the book. That just shows you, A, what would it actually feel like on a day-to-day -day level if you've been alive for 4,000 years? And B, what kind of life would you have to lead if you're that committed to being completely off the grid because of paranoia of what society would do if they found out that you existed, right? Um, but Matea Schoenart has come to her. It At the beginning, it feels like they haven't seen each other in years, right? Yeah, and I'm not clear on that still. I think the the implication is they're so old and they're so reticent to regroup. It's only if a mission feels very important that for them, like not working together for five years or 10 years or whatever is like a, a matter of weeks for us, you know, in the grand scheme of things. So they're just like, well, that was a tough job. I'm going to take a six year vacation, you know? Sure. So she's sort of found by her old teammates and he comes to her with this case he's heard about. From this guy, uh, Copley, uh, who is played by um, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, the great Chiwetel Ejiofor, who at the beginning of the movie, you're like, this guy, I don't, I mean, I'll take any Chewie that I can get, but he feels <laughs> very overqualified for this role. You're sort of confused up until the last 10 minutes why you hire this heavyweight actor to play this role. But I think the movie ultimately explains why, not just in terms of setup for future sequels, but the one scene that really matters where you need an actor of his gravitas to pull off. Um, but he's a guy they've worked with before uh, within the CIA, and now he has left the CIA. Um, he uh, has a, a wife who got sick, uh, and he just said, you know, he left when she got ill. She passed. He never found his way back. He's now working for independent contractors. And he's got a mission for her. Uh, I'm glad David returned. He walked away for a second. But I just want to say, because I need all three brains I'm on back. this. I was very confused uh, by this uh, element in the beginning of the film. 
Um, they say uh, that she would tell Ejia for was a CIA agent. Yes. She says, don't you need to be, or Booker says, don't you need to be American to be a CIA agent? Whichever right. one says it. And he says, uh, I, I was born in Boston, moved to London while I was young. Now, I, right. I, I don't get this. An American, very early on in their life, moving to London and spending their predominant sort right, of like right. coming of age years mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the mm. United Kingdom? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Right. Weird situation. Similar Weird to mine. situation. Wait. Huh? Uh, You're immortal? I, 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 <laughs> well, wait, Chiwetel is not immortal in this movie. No, but if you're saying similar to mine, I have to imagine you're relating to the least ridiculous situation in this movie. Not the one that makes no sense. <laughs> All right, that was funny. Being an American who grew up in London, yeah. that's like a wacky sci-fi premise. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a wacky sci-fi premise. Anyway, I grew up in London. Love the, love the Euro feel of the old guard. A lot of London stuff in this movie. Uh, another thing just set up from the very beginning Charlie's in the hotel lobby seeing the news broadcast that transitions from one awful human injustice yes. story to another awful human injustice story. And she sort of said uh, already a couple times at this point, like, it, we've lost. The world's not worth saving. It's so far gone. It's fucked. She, uh, she is struggling with that. Right. That's that's uh, thousands of years in. She's like, what is the point of all of this? She's in a Griffin Newman headspace. Everything is terrible. <laughs> Everyone's the worst. We can't fix it. We're all doomed. Uh-huh. And they're saying, like, come on, it's a mission. We'll save people. And she's like, irrelevant at this point. Like, come on. Like four thousand year sample size. We're not doing any good for anyone. Things end up just ruining themselves. Right. But they tell her this story about these girls who are being held hostage, uh, seemingly on the verge of being trafficked, and it just like hits her, and she reluctantly agrees to do this rescue mission, which is our first real action sequence. Um, great action sequence that's where they yeah. get mowed down with bullets in like a kill box right, right. they get like lured this, into a yeah 10 minutes in we come back to the opening uh, yeah. and it is right it's a kill box they realize they were set up it was just uh, a trap to get them on camera uh, she would tell uh, yes. been looking for video proof that they are immortal that they can come back from death um, and then they come back from death and they right. kill everyone. And there's some cool, like, you know, I don't know, like using the ground to like fire your shotgun. Like, you know, all these little moves yeah. that are cool. It's very, um, like it's eloquent and it's got like a ballet or like, you know, what's yes. the like pointy little sword play kind of stuff. I'm talking fencing? about fencing. Fencing. It's got a fencing kind of vibe to she it. She definitely. Yeah. She told me she wanted the action to like. She wanted them to fight like people who used to exclusively fight, uh, you know, hand to hand. Because mm. if they're hundreds of years old, they all came up fighting with swords. Like, right. Because right. yeah. the like, gun feels like an extension of that, less than it forward. Gun forward. She wanted that to be their advantage. That like you know modern soldiers using weapons uh, using automatic weapons would not be uh, used to and not know how to deal with someone charging at them like because that's just not how things work anymore but here's the one thing and I guess maybe it is so preposterous that he wouldn't have given the mercenaries a heads up but 
Wouldn't he have like at least mentioned when he hired them, hey, these people might be immortal? Or did he just like he just needed to kind of get them on the ground and then like that's it? I, I mean, look, it's a fair you, question. You, you get it when you get to the Harry Mellon character. Like clearly it's like we gotta keep this shit proprietary. We gotta keep a tight right, lid on. Right, right. Oh, you can't sure. mention it to anyone. Right, that's right. True. He's, he's very worried about his rivals. Mm. Right. And that's a that's a big part of the Harry Mellon character is like he doesn't care how many people have to like die in the churn of trying to get to immortality. Like he views them all as like that's inherent vice. That's like sunk cost. I'm fine with that. It's worth it. You know, he's it, that's what I I love about the sort of slight rejiggering she does of the villain character is like he is absolutely believable as a guy who thinks he's the good guy. Because he's yeah. thinking about everything as an algorithm. You know, he's like, in what way is it not worth killing a hundred people if you then end up solving death for everyone else? Right. Uh, he views his sort of lack of humanity towards everyone who gets in the way of this discovery as for the greater good. But yeah, also he's feature, obviously right. motivated by his legacy and his bottom line and all that sort of shit. Profit motive, sure. But yes, but yes, he does. Right. I mean, obviously Chiwetel's character, the idea is his wife died of ALS, so he's like, well, a cure for disease, surely anything is worth this. He watched her tear it. And the idea of having to suffer through someone, watching someone that close to you die that painfully and slowly would make you want to find a cure for death. And uh, would make you perhaps at your most heightened moments uh, justify some fucked up shit if you felt it was sure. for the greater good. He grabbed the red string and he started yes. tying it from one thumbtack to another. And once you go that far, you're, there's no going back. But he's got a, a still an inherent humanity that that Harry Melling does not. Well, have. well, but this is the it's like Chiwetel is overqualified for this role. I'm very glad he's in the movie. We said this I'm when sure, you went to the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he wanted to work with Gina Prince. By, right, right. Like that was probably part of the well, motivation well, I guess, for I him. Mean, it's, but, it's the setup for what he does at the end. And it's the one yeah. scene where I think it's very clear where they hired someone that big. And this yeah, also, he's so yeah. this movie is is, I would say, markedly worse without him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it makes you in a way, I mean, A, especially because none of that is there with the character on the page in the book. And B, it makes you kind of resent the way he's used in Doctor Strange, where that's a role that is so much tee up for, oh, but the potential sure. of what he could do in sequels. And he yeah. does his job very well there. Chiwetel's a fucking pro. He's got like, you know... Top 10 emotional depth of any actor working today. He's just got an infinite well of emotion that he can apply to even the silliest material. But whereas Doctor Strange is just pretty much like here he is as kind of like mentor ally character with the promise of, oh, he might get to do some real shit in later movies. This movie, even though for a lot of it, you're like, why is this guy so overqualified for this role? Yeah, it justifies why you hire him. Uh, versus uh, hiring me to play this part, you know? Uh, yeah, I y yes, it does. I mean, you should have done it, but yes. No, I wish I played the Harry Melling character, but also he nails it, and he's a better actor than me. Harry Melling is a good actor. It's funny, funny he's like the kid who played Dudley Dudley Dursley. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The thing I loved him most in was um, Scruggs, Buster Scruggs. Yeah, that he's was incredible. incredible. In Scruggs. Yeah, and now he's in like the new Antonio Campos movie. He's in the half shot. 
Joel Cohen Macbeth movie. Yeah, he's in Macbeth, right? He was in yeah. Lost City of Zed. He's in Lost City of Zed. He's like, well, I say it's ridiculous. You know, he was playing yeah, that kind of a character, a but he's good at it. Guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So good. Uh, watching this twice just made me so thirsty for the moment where I get to play my uh, shitty hoodie wearing tech bro villain in an action movie. And like you get the fact that in your neck. Yes, the fact that every villain in an action movie, or at least every other villain in a big action movie, has now become a Griffin Newman type makes right, me more and more eager to eventually play that role. Uh, they're in this kill box scenario. They're caught on camera, and she immediately is like, see, I shouldn't even try to help people. It's not fucking worth it. Now we're screwed. We got to go on the lam again. Uh, so they all run out of there, jump on a train, try to look for a hideout the safe houses they have placed all over the world. Um, and on the train, they all have the nightmare, uh, the nightmare they yes. have that connects them to the other immortals, uh, the other people who got uh, old guard disease or whatever it is. Um, OGD. And it is uh, the great Kiki Lane, uh, who I never realized was tall. Oh, is she a tall? I think she's like five nine or five ten, but mm. uh, especially because Charlize is known she's for being very nine. tall and statuesque. And for whatever reason, in Beale Street, Kiki Lane reads short. I think also yeah, because Stephen James is a big guy, and she's playing such a sort of young, sort of innocent character in that, like childlike character in that. But this movie, the first time she's in an action sequence, and especially when she comes face to face with Charlize and she's holding her own and also is holding her height against her, you realize like, oh, this isn't one of those examples of like Scarlett Johansson being an action star despite being 5'1". Kiki Lane, despite being a not ripped woman, is believable as a soldier. Yeah, I think she was, uh, did the most, they all, you know, they all, everyone in the movie did this sort of classic like, months of boot camp thing, you know, where mm -hmm. you all sort of bond together, learning how to operate weapons and all that stuff. But she, I think she had the most intense training. She has that big plane fight and all that that yeah. she has to do. Yeah. Uh, I love her. I think she's really she's great. interesting. Oh, she's I think a she's blast. got a really unique energy and there's something very raw about her and yeah. something very vulnerable about her that feels perfect for uh, Gina, who is so based in sort of that earnestness of emotion. Yeah. Um, yeah. She raw is a good word for it. Right. Her feelings are very keenly felt like whether they're in, yes. in Beale Street, you know, she's got this sort of like warm, sad, loving energy. And in this movie, she's got this very sort of like independent kind of, you know, mistrustful kind of, you know, she's got a warrior energy, right? Like that's sort of the big moment later in the movie where she's talking about how her father was a soldier and, and like, it's yep. like, yeah, right. You are like, uh, descended from warriors. That's another thing. I mean, that this movie is interested in is the the what what makes a good soldier psychologically in a certain right. way. You know, right? Because she dies trying to help someone, and and he's also been holding women hostage. I mean, it's they right, there's yeah, that yeah. moment where she's only tipped off to it through her humanity, through relating to the children and the women, the, right? In the exactly. Village. Right. They set it yeah. up in a way where she's not a shitty soldier. She's not right. like a piece of shit soldier. She's trying to stabilize this person. They slash her throat. Yeah. I mean, um, you see, as we said, how upset she is by the moment she's realized that she's probably killed a man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, she heals up and everyone's like, oh, oh that's weird. And then that's yeah. when Charlize comes and grabs her. 
and you have the whole plane right. sequence. She's just trying to great. listen to some Frank Ocean and bum out about the fact that she's being discharged and said right. Charlize comes and does the coolest shit ever. And talking about the choreography of this movie, uh, yes, it's very balletic, which I feel like anyone who's done action talks about the fact that shooting action is far closer to dance than it is to any sort of sport uh, sure. because of the amount of takes you have to do and the precision of your relationship to the camera and of stunt guys and wires and all this sort of stuff. Um, and a lot of the best uh, uh, action stars have a dance background. Like the, right. the Russo brothers have talked about that. Uh, Chris Evans and Tom Holland are the best in all the Marvel universe at action because they both did dance when they were young. Mm, that they understand that they're breaking it into like it's step turn step. But here's, this is my question actually. Cause I've, I've brought this up about dancing in movies, like, mm -hmm. uh, like writing dance, right? Mm -hmm. You write a dance. How do you do this? Do you write a fight? Well, because this is based on a comic book, there is like, you know, a vague storyboard already in place, but that's, that's what you do. You storyboard it, you bring it in, yeah. you bring in a choreographer. I mean, most action movies have a very specific choreographer who is sort of the author over those sequences in the same way that the, the dance choreographer is over a musical. And it's like on the script page, it will just say like, Punch. pool fight and it will only <laughs> it doesn't describe, say punch <laughs> right it will just it'll truly say something i mean they talk they about fight like, and it's, uh, yeah yeah in screenplays it's roughly a page a minute except if it's an action movie where right. any page with action is probably five times longer than it's written because it yeah. usually just says they break out in an awesome fight they take no prisoners the only time they'll describe something is if it's an important story beat uh, the fight choreographer on this movie is called Danny Hernandez. He had worked on Avengers Endgame. He's a stunt guy. You know, he'd worked on John Wick. Uh, you know, he's a stunt coordinator on the John Wick movies, yada, yada. You know, I think he's rising in the ranks. She talked about him. I mean, like, you know, she's a very serious director. She's very mm -hmm. methodical in her approach. And she very the much just storm. like consumed every action movie of the last 20 years and mm -hmm. was like, I want this vibe. I don't want this vibe. And she would not Can tell I, me what she didn't want, but I'm pretty, sure. I am inferred that she did not want the more kind of like very slick previs Marvel-y kind of stuff. Sure. Right. It, it feels very practical and tactile. Uh, you have Charlize who is really good at this shit um, and is only getting better and better at action. But it, you know, you have a number one on the call sheet who you don't have to shoot around, who is going to be able to pull off extended choreography without cuts Which works for her character too like you're, she's this immortal warrior and i'm like right it's charlie's she's been in mad max she's been an atomic blonde like you know uh, yeah she's like an action luminary now uh yeah has quietly become like yeah. a, a top tier uh, one of our best action stars despite uh, you know so like not making not an action that. movie with her being the muscle until eon flux which flopped and not really reclaiming it until the last seven or yeah, eight years the only other one is is the italian job which is sort of an action movie like she does a lot she of was driving just and complaining stuff. about it this week in interviews yeah. that she doesn't she really get to do, to do more enough. right yeah uh hancock of course oh yes which she's pretty good in, but it's hancock. far more special effects based yes that's not uh right as actiony but right. another movie in which she plays an immortal 
Eon Flux, uh, uh, Mad Max, Old Guard, and Atomic Blonde, she is doing closer to Keanu-type work. And I think they're very unified in what makes both of them good as action stars, that they retain their vulnerability, and it is just sort of the precision of it. Uh, But the other thing I love about the action in this movie that I finally sort of like wrap my hands around watching it a second time is they're all so relaxed. It is the sort of like Malcolm Gladwell thing of they have done this, not like 10,000 hours, but like, you know, 10,000 like years. No, I get it. I'm I'm exaggerating, but there are moments where in the final action sequence, one guy will just casually hand a gun back to a different person. And it's like the combination of a, they know they're probably going to be able to recover from any hit they take and B they've done it so many times that for them, all of this is like brushing your teeth. It's like, which move am I going to do? You know, and they all know each other's moves. And that element of it is very interesting to see where so often actors and choreography are showing tension and like the exertion and the clenched teeth and how hard it is. And this is just sort of like, (laughs) so they get Kiki Lane, they bring her on a plane. This shit's great with uh, Kiki Lane just refusing to accept what's happened to her. Trying to stab Charlize. Yeah. Well, because I want to say also, I like how they deal with her not initially accepting it and just Charlie shooting her in the head. In the head. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And just like making it just so blunt for right. the audience. Like it's uh it's wild. It and really is. Like, just shocking. get over it. It's so I shocking have, though, every time. I know. Yes. I know, but it's it's because of the space it's given and also the like actual detail and realism of their injuries. That they look really fucking bad every time they get shot. Yeah. Watching right. the bullet come out of their head is gross. Ugh. Yes. Yeah, the violence definitely right. It's it's not exactly fun violence, but it is uh, like interesting. But I don't know how else to put it. Like you are kind of like transfixed by it. It's given weight and it has consequence. Yes, yes. but it's also kind of cool. It, it makes me like because when the movie started, I will say the first raid sequence, I was like, I, I'm like, I want to like this, but also I'm just so tired of gun violence in movies. But but the amount of time and space this movie gives to like, this is not cool. Like, even if the action is cool, the devastation it leaves is not something that's fun. You carry these people with you. And uh, uh, the aftermath of this violence, it looks appropriately disturbing. Um, so the plane sequence fucking rules. It's right. such the good most fun version is the plane sequence because it's two right. immortals against each other. So there's it's less testing it out of that. Right. Yeah. Right. And there's the fake out with the pilot's death, but fake all the psychological fun. games that uh, Charlie's Andy plays with Nile are, are so good too. Of just like she's just done all of this. She's worked through every scenario. I mean, she's like late Groundhog Day Bill Murray, where she's like, I just know how everything goes. Yeah, I know every yeah. variable at this point. She's a little bored, though. She's like almost like, ugh, I have to introduce another person to all this. All right. Yeah. So Kiki Lane meets the group. And here's a big difference in the comic. In the comic, uh, Joe and Nikki are kidnapped before Kiki Lane gets brought on board. So she never knows them until after they save them. Uh-huh. So there's like no team dynamic with the actual full team at all. Yes, right, absolutely. And it's one of the things you and I love team movies. 
I think that comes from our leave of team, uh, love of team comic books. Love of X-Men for sure. Yes, that's a huge thing. It's the thing where uh, not only do I love team action, I love a movie where multiple characters get to feel like they actually matter, that they're fully rounded and they exist. I love, um, you know, uh, Martin Eden. What's his name? Uh, Luca Marinelli and Marwan Kanzari. The um, uh, Hot Jafar uh, Hot is Jafar. so fucking good in this movie. Great it, in this you, movie. This actor is Hot Jafar from Guy Ritchie's Aladdin, Ben. Um, okay, okay. And he is so goddamn good in this. I believe he's uh, like he's like Dutch. He's like Tunisian Dutch, right? And when okay. he was in uh, Aladdin, I didn't really know him, but someone was like, oh yeah, this guy, like he's in like a couple, you know, Dutch movies. Like, you know, he's, he's sort of a thing. And I was sort of like, I was very perplexed by his Jafar performance because he's so serious and very low key in that movie. Like he's very like intense. And of course, Jafar in Aladdin is like this big, broad, you know, silly figure. And I get that he was like, well, I can't do that. I need to like dial it, you know, in the other direction. Yeah. But I I didn't come out of Aladdin being like, oh, this guy is uh, someone to watch. Whereas no, in this, no. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's so yeah. fucking, you know, sexy. He's so like, he's hot. So he's sexy. very, very alluring, a very magnetic figure. Um, but all this stuff is just really good of her meeting the team, uh, yeah. coming to understand what the rest of her existence is going to be like. Yeah. Uh, learning all the rules, learning about the people they've lost over the years. Right. You yeah. know, like the, yeah. Yeah. So the comic does not have the Quinn character at all. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. wow. Because okay. that's one of the things that feels like the biggest sequel tee up. Um, 100%. Uh, perhaps she comes in the second volume, is not in the first volume whatsoever. There is one extended flashback to the one serious romantic relationship that Andy had, which was with an American uh, slave. And okay. it was sort of like a Benjamin Button thing where she slowed down and spent like 50 years of her life with him as right. he eventually she, like, took some time off. Right, 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 right. And that was like the one great, like the loss of having to watch him die essentially and having to leave him was the thing that made her resist emotional connection, which is far less interesting than the Quinn thing, which is really playing on the existential terror of this existence. Like what's yeah. the only thing weirder than not being able to die not being able to die and being at the bottom of the ocean in an Iron Maiden. Which, by the way, sounds no good. That sounds Very bad. Rough. Don't do it. Oh, no, yeah. don't it do it. It makes me cringe. Like, like when I, yeah. it's portrayed in the movie, it really, it made me, I had such a visceral reaction. Yes. Um, um, yes. When agreed. they go to the hideout, the cave where the Rodan is and all the other stuff, there's one shot of Kiki Lane taking uh, a blanket off a painting. And that's the painting of Charlize and the love interest character from Uh the comic, I think implying whether or not it will come into play later that that character still was a period of her life. But Quinn was like the first or not. I guess there's the other fellow immortal, the the man that she said she saw die. Um, Uh, The one immortal she's seen die. Right. Right. Uh, Played Uh, by Joey Anso. Yeah. But Quinn was the Joe to her Nikki. Uh, Was not just her partner, but uh, the love of her life. Uh, And... Uh, was pulled apart from her uh, because of fear of witchcraft. Uh, And now is at the bottom of the ocean. It haunts her. Kiki Lane has the nightmare about her. So she starts to find out about all this thing, their existence, the vague rules that they do and don't understand, how they still 
are able to enjoy life. But you're getting right. this thing of like, Charlize is just sort of over it. Like she just wishes she had the sweet release of death now. And even though Matthias Schoenarts is relatively the toddler of the group, he seems to be taking it really roughly. And right. you get the thing with his son, which is uh, even maybe a bigger element in the comics of just, uh, this is why we can't have human attachments. Mm. It's not just that you have to watch people die and that you have to watch their resentment over the fact that you have something that you can never share with them, mm-hmm. that you're going to keep on living and there's no way to pass it on to them. But you will see people, your loved ones, the people you care about most in the final years of their life transform into something really ugly as they resent your condition. Uh, and and not only will you have to live with the loss of those people, but you'll have to live with the memories of how warped they became by the end of it. Classic immortal stuff. Classic immortal yeah. drama, oh, good right? Shit. You know, good shit. Yeah. I mean, this movie's just, I'm always into it. It's front loading all the stuff that is usually subtext in these movies, um, yeah, and really true. making it about that sort of uh, condition in sort of like a sci-fi short story kind of way. Also, um, though, they're so hot. Every we and we haven't so even hot. talked about um, Matthias Schonart, and uh, you know uh, who is <sighs> just just a just a, a very a very fun person to look at. I really One enjoy of the looking most at him. Relaxed on-screen presences, like even when mm. he's playing really intense guys, he just makes everything feel so natural, so calm, so lived in. You know. I feel like I guess the first thing I saw him in was Rust and Bone. I didn't see Bullhead, which was like his yeah. his breakout. That was his breakout. But, but he's I been acting Rust since he was Bone. thirteen. He's a yeah. Belgian graffiti artist. Hell yeah! And Rust yeah, and Bone. Ben. You hear that? I didn't ben? know that. That fucking oh, yeah. rules. But it was yeah, like Bullhead, Rust and Bone uh, was his big breakout, and then you have like uh, the drop and. Um, uh, what was it? Mustang, and he's great. He's great, and he's so fucking hot, and he's great in this. I love that. There's never a romantic uh entanglement between either him and Niall or him and Andy, which it yeah. felt, feels like ninety nine out of a hundred versions of this movie would do. Right, uh, right. He has to at least have will they or won't they energy with one of the female leads, and he doesn't. And this movie has two romances in it essentially, and both of them are queer. Uh, mm. which is somewhat profound and revolutionary. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like these are like two serious, undying loves that our heroic characters have, and they're both queer. Um, you, you the thing you read at the start, you know, the big moment where uh, he, you know, yes. he scoffs at the uh, talks about his love for his partner. You know. That's in the comic book, right? That's, like, that's in the a, comic. That's the right. thing that Gina said when she read that in the comic. She said, I want to make like, this Holy movie. She was like, holy shit. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I feel like, I, I talked about Mark Millar earlier, but he's like this mm. perfect example of a guy who's essentially writing comic books so that he can get them option these days, right? And there's this thing I often see in like original comic books where uh, A, the premise is like, it's like this, but this. It's sort of like, it feels like a Hollywood pitch of like, what if it's like this meets this? I'm taking this well-established hit film or franchise or comic property, and I'm putting a slightly different twist on it so it's easily packageable. But the other thing is they always have these scenes that feel like, and I don't say this in a negative way, but a comic writer going, man, I always wish I saw this kind of scene happen in a movie. You know? 
Right. Yes. And so it feels like a riff on like the kind of homophobia that often exists in these types of films and the idea of what if a bad guy makes a quick gay crack and the retort to it is the most emotionally profound thing you've ever heard someone say. Right. And they're all like, oh, 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 right. right. Yeah. Right. And in the comic, it's kind of striking. But the way time just fucking stands still during this monologue. And it's pretty good. And fucking Kenzari just like killing it. Yeah, he is killing it. And it's and Martin thing. Eden, I oh, only yeah. know him as Martin Eden. I forget what his, I keep forgetting. He's Italian. Luca Marinelli. But that guy's, uh, yeah. uh, he's a cutie. Everyone in this movie's hot. Everyone in this movie is yeah, hot. Yeah, it's a very, yes, it's a very hot cast. Yes. Um, but the, the extended beat after the monologue, uh, when the guys just kind of look at each other and look at them. Right. And it's not even like before they, they sort of try to, to uh, uh, apprehend them again, uh, restrain them again. It's mm-hmm. not even like a like uh, awkward. It's a wow. I now feel stupid. I realize my lack of emotional depth. Like it's <laughs> right. all these grunts suddenly feeling really, really like basic. Yeah, you're right. They, they've been put in place because they're like. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I felt that way about someone or maybe not. I don't yeah, know. Like actually. in high school. Yeah. <laughs> so they've been apprehended now. Henry, Harry Melling uh, has been promised by Chiwetel that he will collect the old guard so they can perform tests on them and try to bottle whatever it is that keeps them immortal. Right. Uh, so he can sell the cure for death. And the remainder of the movie is pretty much uh them trying to retrieve Joe and Nikki yep. while Charlie's fights her sort of over it attitudes to this entire fucking enterprise of being a human being of being alive and the realization that her mortality is starting to perhaps catch up with her right. um uh Matea Schonartz despite being a relative newbie is just fucking over it it feels like he's, he's the still- cipher He's the one who's like, maybe we just want to die. Like, he's you know, in maybe- the bargaining phase of all of yeah. this. He's trying to see if there's a way out. They all talk as if they've experimented with a way out, as, as if they wish to some degree they could be uh, killed. And he's still at the point where he feels like it might be worth making the Faustian bargain. And Kiki Lane is still just questioning whether she wants to deal with any of this shit. Like, she just wants to go back and be with her parents. And they just are or at least, or, you know, her mother and her brother. And they keep on trying to explain to her, like, you cannot exist in proper society ever again. Like, your, your troop mates saw you recover within a day from a throat slashing. Like, if you're existing in the proper world, people are going to apprehend you. And they are going to distrust you and they're going to turn against you. Like you're, you're, I'm sorry, you're fucked. You're doomed. Like you can just live off the grid or you can live with us and try to do shit about it. But there's no normal life you can have with regular attachments to human beings. But that's a bummer for her. I wouldn't want, you know, I, I would be a little grumpy too. I mean, that's what, yeah, this movie's like dealing with all that. It's like, yeah. right. Yeah. This isn't fun. And Not it, fun. it's sort of in a certain way also about like the hard work of trying to make the world a better place which does not make one feel good you know like spending this much time wallowing in the worst of humanity in order to try to combat it tends to make you focus on the worst of humanity it is a thing that i love about uh uh i was never really here you were never really here but my my favorite movie of two years ago where it's like taking this sort of like vigilante like 
taken. Oh, he's the guy correcting the wrongs of the world. It's like that guy would be fucking miserable. He would put a plastic bag over his head every single night because he has to spend so much time exposed to the worst shit on the planet, you know? And it makes sense that Kiki Lane, who is young, not just in relation to most mortal human beings, but, you know, infinitely younger than the rest of the people she's with right now, would just be like, no, no, hard pass, none of this. Let me just sit on a couch and watch TV with my brother. But she is inherently a warrior. She can't knock that out of her spirit. Charlize, you know, at this point is over it enough that she understands and she has this sort of compassion that you feel like she maybe wouldn't have had 600 years ago and says like, look, I can't keep you here. I can't tell you this is worth doing because I hate it and I think it sucks and I wish I were dead and I don't even think it worked. Uh, So like go back, you know, Um, but by giving her a gun so that she's able to fend for herself. She realizes the gun was given to her, uh, Andy, by Matteo Schoenarts. The gun is empty. Matteo Schoenarts is setting Andy up to be captured. Right. He does not know that Andy is starting to become mortal. You have that great scene where Andy breaks off from the group and goes to the pharmacy in France. Yes, love that scene. And it's that little moment of compassion uh, of this young woman, uh, this like punk woman uh, behind... Uh, the counter at a pharmacy at presumably three o'clock in the morning who not only doesn't ask questions about the amount of violence that clearly has happened to Charlize, but takes her in the back room and helps stitch her up because like that's at the end of the day, like what is life worth living for? If not those small moments of kindness and why be a person, if not to find some opportunities to extend those moments of kindness to others. So that's a brief sort of like, maybe this is kind of worth it moment for Charlize. But of course, uh, when Kiki Lane puts it together, tracks him down uh, and goes and meets face to face with Shuatel, Shuatel has his big Oscar scene uh, where he talks about watching his wife die and is not delivered in a James Bond villain kind of like, you don't understand. I want to stop death way. It is such just a vulnerable, broken man just saying, like, when you watch someone you love that much suffer that dearly, it throws everything out of whack. You know, it really makes you question everything because it doesn't feel like that is just that someone you feel for that deeply can hurt that much. It also speaks to Gina's interest in consequences Uh, in a way that most action movies are not, not just the consequence of death, but the consequence of choices that they push Chiwetel to a breaking point that even when he sees them being tortured, that all the early stages, he bites his tongue and lets it happen because this is a guy who has to live with what he's done. Like there is not a clean path to redemption and he's set up to be uh, more beneficial to the world by the end of the movie, but they're still not trying to totally acquit him for the choices he's made because they've, been doing similar things they've lived for fucking thousands of years it's very clear that all of them have had periods where they've been fucking awful yeah but i like this is what i like about it it's like they're never no one's ever that like when when booker um betrays them their their reaction is i mean i um uh joe marwan kanzari he's he's a little madder about it but like andy's reaction is mostly like oh sweetie jesus come on like really but why is joe angry about it 
Well, because Joe has Nikki and he has something to live for. Right. They've been captured. That is the big they, difference. Right. Yeah, you're, Joe, right. you're Joe, right. You're right. Joe and Nikki feel like the two who are at peace with their immortality because they have found each other. And the other three characters are like, get me out of this. But she, she would tell as well. Right. It's like they just do not have an approach to people that's kind of like, well, you're clearly bad and that's the end of you. I mean, Harry Melling, right. they kill him because he's trying to kill them. But right. like they've lived long enough that they probably have more of a concept of like a redemptive arc and like this, you know, you know, the kind of balance of like good and bad in the world. And also how many times uh, were each of this, each of these characters fighting on the wrong side of a war? Like they've done it. They've done both sides, you know, like they've just, they've been through fucking everything. And they've done everything a thousand times. Like the fact that Andy, when she finds out about Booker, sort of setting her up is just like, oh, come on, Booker. Like she looks at him with a level of compassion where she's like, I know what drove you to do this. I have all of those same uh, impulses. I'm not even angry. I'm just disappointed. Um, And at the final moment when they give Booker his punishment to jump ahead a little bit, what does she do after that? She hugs him and she cries. Like, it's not just disciplinary. It's like, this sucks, you know? Um, but yes, this final action sequence where the team works together one last time, they free Joe and Nikki. Kiki Lane sort of comes into her own. Andy has given up. The rest of the team has figured out that she is losing her immortality. And uh, it's not even worth fighting anymore. But Kiki Lane has had the Oscar scene with Chiwetel Ejiofor, where he explains the wife, but also shows the cork board. He shows her the red yarn and that in trying to track these people down and trace their impact on history, he has realized the amount of sort of butterfly effect good they have done for the world. That they are too close to, as uh, Kiki Lane says, uh, uh, what, she's in it, but she can't even see it. Um, but yeah, this final action sequence is great. It's, it's just great team action and as we it's said, good, it's all Good just, grossness. Yeah. Yeah, like I, you know, like Luca Marinella getting shot at one point, right? He's the one. Like one of them gets shot, yeah. and he's like, "Ugh, you know, it's so annoying." We didn't talk about, but just the moment where they find Booker and his like entire stomach's been mangled, like they've cut him yes. up and they're waiting for him oh, to wake yeah. up again. So good, and it's just like so gross. Like it's like fucking full zombie movie gore with total realism in a way you never see in comic book movies. Like you, this stuff can't just be fun. If we're dealing with life and death at this level, it needs to be taken seriously with weight from every aspect. And so she's constantly just doing anything she can to underline the stakes of just any human life and, and the value in that in movies where people are usually just disposed of wantonly and where we rarely see the aftermath of violence in any sort of visceral way you know even movies that are bloody are rarely bloody in a way that is realistic and actually upsetting in the way that this film is uh i love it it's sad it's upsetting it's a lonely movie uh you know it's lonely and it's mournful yeah or melancholy that's the criticism i i more readily expect is it's just like not fun i found it to be kind of a bummer because you do have to very much get onto its wavelength to find the fun where it is and and feel willing to accept fun with consequences you know um 
the idea that this movie is the same as Extraction is bananas. Uh, yes. Um, haven't seen Extraction yet. I hear there's something with a rake. His name is Rake. No, but then at some point he like he kills someone a with a rake course, or something. Does. Wait, of is this the perfume movie? Definitely not the no. perfume, oh, perfume okay. movie. Now I, right. I'm very with, curious. Uh, Jason Bateman. What? Jason <laughs> Bateman perfume movie? What are you talking about? I don't know. You I mean like extract? A- you oh, mean the film extract? The the eleven year old Mike Judge comedy about um, vanilla flavoring smells. for bacon? <laughs> right. No, a different uh, movie. No, that was not a movie that the old guard was being compared to. <laughs> what if it was though? People are like, I don't know. This feels very derivative of extract. Yeah. She's really just like cribbing from you know the masters. Uh, you know. Uh, John Woo, uh, Mike Judge, <laughs> the masters of the of the genre. Hey, Mike Judge, that's one of my guys. When we yeah. get to our next go hey. around a March Mad, if we're gonna do right, like he our could own be on your list. Division, yeah, that would be uh, that would be a list. good good series. Yeah. I think. I, what is it? I've, four or I've, five movies. I've watched Idiocracy in uh, lockdown. Oh, man, that's a, I that, haven't. That I've, movie hits. Yeah. That movie hits. I can I mean, imagine. it would be, it's four movies. It would be Beavis and Butthead, Office Space, Idiocracy, Extract. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a solid four movie miniseries. I mean, that's, if we do the March Madness idea where each of us gets to pick a quadrant. Yeah. He would be in your eight, right, Ben? A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. For sure. But yes, I I just think even if you don't like this movie, you cannot act like it is the same as Extraction when it has this much more on its mind. You know, when it is pointedly sort of standing in opposition to that sort of film. Uh, and that film has its own merits and values for what it is, you know? Extraction? Yeah. It's got some but, rakes. I, I want to see it. I should watch it. What, does he extract someone? Yes. I mean, there's okay. literally another movie on Netflix called Extraction from like a year ago with Bruce Willis. <laughs> okay, like, right. but that doesn't count. If Bruce Willis isn't a movie, it doesn't count. In the last five years, correct. It doesn't count. Well, I would I would unfortunately say last 10. <laughs> like, you know, because of course there are exceptions that prove the yeah. rule, but by no. and large, yeah. David, he had a good run at the beginning of the 2010s. He had yes, Looper he and Moonrise in 2012. yeah. Yeah. Were those yeah, both 20? That's it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that's, you know. And, uh, and. And of course, he's, he's in, you know, in, in glass and we enjoy that. We enjoy. I actually kind of enjoyed him in motherless Brooklyn. Uh, he's only in it briefly. I wish he had done more than three days on glass. Uh, but uh, I do right. think he's good in it. Uh, he, he sells drowning in a puddle like uh, no one could. Um, I also. David, I think he's good in G.I. Joe Retaliation. Right, sure, I haven't seen, but believe you. It's just but that past, he's in movies past like... that point. Yeah, can I, can I do a Trauma Center. Yeah. The Prince, Vice, Precious Cargo, Marauders, First Kill, Acts of Violence, Reprisal, Death Wish, Airstrike. None of these movies exist. Breach, Hard Kill, Cosmic Sin, Midnight in the Switchgrass, Reactor, Out of Death. Uh, those are all, let me just look this up here. Uh, movies that Bruce Willis has filmed in the last month. Yeah, right. And, and he filmed them all in one month. 
Yes. Uh, Bruce Willis could film his parts in these movies over Zoom and they would not affect the quality of his performance at all. That is the <laughs> level of work he is doing in these direct to red box movies. Um, but how's the movie end? Uh, Kihi Lane goes to Charlize and says, like, you can't give up. You have to fucking fight. And Charlize decides that they are actually doing something of value and she's willing to enter one last big hunkin' action sequence even knowing she might not make it out of there alive because it's worth it for the greater good in her eyes. Yes. Um, they use the uh, the fake-out routine uh, with the pilot to get Harry Melling. I love that Kiki Lane finally is just like, I gotta protect Charlize. She can't shoot him. What can I do? I can use myself as a weapon. I can throw myself out a window and fucking essentially live through a death in order to make sure that this guy gets taken off the board. And then her sort of like gnarled body in the collapsed car, slowly cracking back into place, is so unsettling. And the final real moment in the movie is... Or not really, but her last big character moment is before they get in the car to drive away, she looks at Harry Melling's body. Even he is a death that she has to take account for and carry with her. And this is what I'm talking about. There's so much shit that is just a look in this movie. A reaction, a wince yeah, from a character. No, no, you're right. To a, a concept. You gotta watch this thing with, with full eyes. Um, but then, of course, they go to Chiwetel and they go like, uh, look, this isn't uh, a request. This is a demand. You're our Professor X now, which got me so amped up. The idea of A, Chuatel being part of a team in the second movie and B, them now like having this renewed faith in the good they can do for humanity and him being like essentially the uh, human non-superpowered version of Cerebro. Right? Like, that's what he is. It's not like that he's Professor X. It's like he's bureaucratic cerebro, where he's like, look, here's a place you gotta go. I found another tragedy that could be avoided. Here's another way in which you've helped. Uh, it just gets me fucking amped up. And he goes like, it would be an honor. Cut to black. The old guard. Fucking awesome. But of course, the one plot detail I forgot to mention is that they have the meeting where they need to come up with the punishment for Booker, which they do yeah. with compassion, but they tell him he's going to have to spend 100 years in his own. Uh, he's on a, just a brief one century time out before right. he can That's like a, a 10 game suspension in the NBA right. or whatever. Right. Yes. And he says, I guess I'm never going to see you again, knowing that Charlize is now presumably killable. And she says, you should have a little more faith, Booker. I do love that by the end of this movie, she's a character who's like, I'm going to keep on fighting to try to stay alive. Uh, it's a really nice full circle fucking character arc. An actual thing that happens is set up and concluded in one movie, which is why this is not just fucking franchise starter bullshit. You know? I don't know, though. But no one got killed with a rake. Few Marvel movies have journeys this complete for their main characters but there's Fair no post credit scene there is kind of oh, is. there is there's Quinn no, coming no back. but there's yeah, the I mean, title and then they post cut to Booker right. drinking uh -huh. his whiskey well yeah I right okay I guess that serves as one I suppose and he finds Quinn which I forgot they set up when Kiki Lane has the nightmare about Quinn about drowning in the Iron Maiden which I guess should have been a tip off to the rest of them that Quinn was still alive 
Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to hear that. Uh, it would be funny if I mean, she they know was really wet alive. when she shows up. Like her clothes well, It asks you a lot of questions. Where's she been this whole time? I don't know if she's in volume two of the comic, but it, she's not in volume one. So I have no sense of where this is. Maybe going. she is. Though. Maybe that was right. Yeah. Um, volume two. And then fucking L King song and credits with photos of Shuatel's board of all yeah. the different places they've been in history. And it's a tiny thing, but talking about fucking integrity as a director, bane of my existence, huge pet peeve, Movies with badly photoshopped photos, right? Yes. Where you're trying to place an actor in an earlier moment and it's a horribly photoshopped or like green screen photo or clearly just a photo from that actor's personal collection that they put in a frame because they can't take the time to make a good fake photo. And this is really exquisitely well done putting them into historical photos and subtly like in the background. Uh, but really well integrated. You see them just in all these different wars and different situations hiding in the background. And I get fucking amped. The old guard rules. I want to see more adventures from them. I want them to justify to me why life is still worth living. Existential action movies for the win. Gotta it's my fucking John living. Wick thing. It's my John Wick thing. Those movies are good because they're about trying to f- come up with a reason to stay alive. In a bad world. In a bad world, Griffin, do you have a Gina Prince Bythewood ranking? I do. My number one is Beyond the Lights. My number two is Love and Basketball. My number three is The Old Guard. My number four is Disappearing Acts. And my number five is The Secret Life of Bees. I have the same list, except I've got Basketball on top and Beyond the Lights second. But um, I think those are both perfect to right is 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 very big and then old guard a very solid third yeah i mean i think we were like dropping our list but both of us are like old guard top five original netflix movie ever putting it in the tier of shit like the irishman at buster scruggs and defy bloods um you like marriage story more than i do but but we're, we're talking that level of actual auteurs being given free reign to do whatever they want. Okja, Roma, you know, like the ones that are real movies. This deserves to be viewed alongside those rather than alongside Extraction. No disrespect Mank. to Extraction. It's gonna, I'm excited for Mank. I, I hope Mank slaps. What's Mank? It's, it's, Mank uh, it's is the next Fincher movie. David Fincher's okay. movie, which is about the screenwriter of Citizen Kane. That's right, Screen baby. Movie. God. Yeah. Shut up. Hey, and Tom Burke. Tom Burke is playing Orson Welles. Ben, how easily you scoff at screenwriter movies. Mink might have a scene where he's trying to write in the <laughs> bathtub. <laughs> I guess you're right. <laughs> no, he can't. T- Fincher knows he can't go near bathtubs for this movie. He can't. No, he knows I'm, that's that's I'm that's trying to write in covered. the hot tub. <laughs> right. No, that's like that's like doing, you know, like it's like how uh, you know, 2001, right? There's stuff like if you're making a space movie, you can't imitate. I am trying to write in a steam bath. You can't get to Trumbo. You can't do Trumbo stuff. I am trying to write on the bidet. He'll do some variation. <laughs> that's fine. No, you that's okay. To. That'd be okay. You have to. Um, um, I love yeah. this movie. I think it's great. And I miss seeing movies in theaters. I wish I'd gotten to see this in theaters. Both of us have talked about that, about how awesome this movie would be with a crowd. 
Yes. There's just a few good moments of like where you can, you know, feel like a crowd would have a, a big old reaction. It'd but also fun. those moments of quiet, of of pausing, of of depth uh, would register even harder in a theater. You know, because I think she's very deliberate about her uses of like silence. Uh, uh, Gina's movies all have a lot of very, very subtly edited background atmosphere noise. And for as much as she's good at using music in films, both score and soundtrack, she'll have these moments where it's just silence between characters and she plays up really heavily on the mix, the ambient noise of their environment. If you watch any of these movies with subtitles, which I almost always watch movies with closed captioning so I can try to pay more attention to them, uh, it's clear how deliberate it is because the closed captioning always says like, sound of honking in the street, you know, wind rustling yeah. through the leaves, things like that. She's really into those moments because silence is one of the most effective and underused tools a filmmaker can have in their arsenal these days. And especially because it is so underused, when she deploys it, it's kind of striking. But it's more striking in a theater when you are noticing everyone in the same room being silent with you while watching the movie. Whereas with yeah. home, those Nothing moments like are punctuated by theater. you farting or whatever. Wow, fart detectors back again. I love Gina. I'm glad she's finally seemingly been handed the checkbook she deserves. I hope she gets to make The Older Guard. I'm excited to see this Viola Davis movie. I hope she gets to make everything. Uh, I think she's one of our best and and undersung for far too long. And uh, uh, as we said, Bilga's pieces on her have been phenomenal. His review of Old yeah, Guard, yeah, which is really in-depth and good. good. And then his yeah. profile, The Quiet Storm, is amazing and you should read them. Um, I will say people have been saying like, oh, well, you know, I guess her blank check is coming and like, you know, but like this is uh, it's a 70 million dollar movie. It's a big yeah. action movie. It was shot all over the globe. This is um, hands off. This is one person's vision. Skydance fucking trusted her like this is unmistakably her movie. You feel zero concessions in it. Oh, one thing I wanted to say that she told me that's wild is that, you know, it's got the score by, um, you know, Dustin O'Halloran and and Hauschka. Mm. Um, and they, they recorded it in Iceland because she was like, I was going to have to have a digital score because of the quarantine, like because oh, quarantine wow. hit before we recorded it. And I have never used a synthesized score like I've always had orchestral scores. And so I was really upset about that. And then Dustin literally happened to be in Iceland when this all went down and Iceland did not lock down. Like, you know, Iceland has dealt That's awesome. with a much smaller country. It's an island, all yeah. that. Uh, so they were able to record it isn't that a weird little detail yeah i love it hey this was a good mini series good mini series. yeah just a nice little quick mini series of someone i'm very happy uh that we will be able to draw some uh, conversation to and already it's been very exciting to just see people talking about uh prince bythewood more because of this movie yeah we have always been of the contention that she's a filmmaker should be taken very seriously for sure and, uh, you know, we said this, but as our podcast shifts and uh, we are in a position where rather than necessarily having to follow the trends of directors who are taken seriously and thus covering them in order to uh, bring eyeballs to our podcast, ear holes, rather, I should say, it is nice to use the ear holes we already have uh, to sort of make our own canon and go like, every time we cover a director, it's us making a little bit of an argument that this person deserves to be taken seriously and some of those people we're not really giving them a, a boost you know it's, right, I, 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 it's, I'm, I'm not, is, 
we're not necessarily like doing this show where it's like, well, these are our favorite directors, but certainly they are all directors who have had some impact and, or, you know, made some sort of, you know, body of work that is fascinating and like worth considering as a body. of. But we're also not at this point doing a show where it's like, these are the 15 most legendary filmmakers of all time. You know, it's one of the reasons when people go like, are you guys perverse with some of these director choices? Like, why would you choose to do another romantic comedy person or do Ang Lee before you've done Fincher or Kubrick or whatever? And it's like, because it's more interesting to have these sort of auteurist conversations with people who aren't already like this thoroughly chewed upon. And look, when we did Nolan, it was great. I was resistant to it. I thought he was too disgust and I end up being fun to talk about it. And we'll get to everyone eventually. We'll do the show for a thousand years because spoiler alert, uh, we're the old guard. We can never die. Or at least just not for a long time. Yeah. But yeah, so good mini series. I'm glad we got uh, this in before we start now, this big kind of run of Zemeckis right. or March Madness. Uh, starting, in su- starting in September, we're going right to him. We're doing Robert Zemeckis. He's yeah. going to run all the way through January. He has made many movies, he's made all kinds of yep. movies. Griffin, before we go, tell mm. me what it is you want to call the miniseries. I wanted to end the episode by throwing out a couple pitches, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I just want to say uh, it's been a pleasure doing Pod and Basket Cast. Mm-hmm. Do we have a nickname for Ben? Oh. oh. I Shit. don't know. Secret Life of Haas. I don't know. I have <laughs> to think about it. It could be Secret Life of Ben's. Yeah, I With guess a Z. So. With a Z. Yeah, yeah with a Z. I mean, That's yeah, a little fun. Well, well, that's something he, he started doing, remember? Exactly. And I always like when a nickname can riff on a, a new nickname that has yet to be riffed on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That a miniseries title can reappropriate yeah. another nickname from the non-miniseries category. Uh, for sure. But um, for, so let, that can at least be the placeholder unless someone pitches okay. us something better. But but what are your Zemeckis? Come on. Come on. Well, give me I'm going to say thank you all for listening and please remember to rate, <gasps> review, subscribe. Wait. Thanks to Lane Montgomery for our Hold theme on. song. Joe Bona, Pat Reynolds for our artwork. Andrew Aguda for co-producing the show. Rachel Jacobs for her editing assistance. Ben, what do I got to hold on for? Well, guys, I think it would be kind of cool to announce something because we've been waiting to announce it for a little while. And this sort of feels like a clean place to do so. So I think we should officially say on the record that we have blank check merch available. Oh, oh yes. Sure. Yes. Uh, we will have details on our social media, but our own storefront, our own merchandise. This isn't T public stuff anymore where it's made to order. We're keeping the T public and the designs up for the time being, but one by one, we're going to start retiring those and moving them over to our own storefront where you're going to have a uh, higher quality merchandise. Yep. Made by like, um, an Austin base press, uh, uh, night owl who were referred to us by our friends at super Yaki. So right. if you're familiar with that quality of product, uh, both in terms of quality of print and of fabric, uh, that's the kind of stuff we're working on right now. We got comedy okay. point coins. We've got, Hashtag the two friend hats. And most importantly, we have special fifth anniversary merchandise that was produced for our intended little tour of fifth anniversary shows that did not happen. So this is real limited one run only stuff, a very special fifth anniversary. It's tough to make the five design by our good friend, Joe Bowen. 
so if you're a real blankie, you might want that stuff in your home. And as always, pod to the future cast. Wow. That's pod, what we were building up for. <laughs> pod to the future cast. Part two. Mm, yeah, anything pod else? Cast, part three. I want to pod your cast. I want to pod, pod Mansing the cast. Podcast. Who, gump. who, who, who potted Podger cast bit? You know, pod mancing the cast is kind of funny. Podcast becomes her. Yeah. What podcast Paris. beneath? What about podcom to cast win? Oh, I mean, that is now, disgusting. That is depraved. <laughs> pod contact. No, no, not that one. The podcast Lur Express. Well, I forgot. Of course, there is there is a movie with the word cast in it. I forgot well, that we could always do podcast. You. That was away. the joke I was building up towards. <laughs> well, I didn't realize you were building up to a joke. The actual title's Podcast Away. That's my oh. earnest suggestion. I was going to set it up as a joke, but I think I we should no just commit idea. to the next miniseries being called Podcast Away. Yeah, I think if there's a cast in a title. I think we kind of just have to acknowledge it, right? Like, well, yeah, I mean, we do. And I had come to that conclusion and was going to set it up in a funny way. Sorry, Jesus. This is what happens when you don't tell me about bits, Griffin. Because I like things to be organic. I don't want any of this phony baloney scripted bullshit. <laughs> I just want to say, David, once again, I shouldn't be punished for not wanting to pre-plan bits that are fake. Because this show is all about verisimilitude as best evidenced by the time that Ben and I really traveled into a podcast within a podcast and went seven layers. <laughs> yeah, right. Of course. Uh, no, that was just a dream you had. You don't remember it. It's yeah, but it was a real the, dream. You woke up being like, huh? Huh? If someone could have seen us in the studio, Griffin, yeah, you and silly. I, oh my God. We, and David we just... Did rolling his eyes so I, I believe hard. I took pictures of, of you. We did so full physical comedy. We were acting yeah. like the room was spinning. You were doing Only the lean. For you know other. how like yeah. in Inception they're like kind of the leaning. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. <laughs>